And welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinatomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host Nick. Hello. Thank you for joining us today for another conversation about some of our favorite films. Please give us a follow on Twitter at Kinatomic or drop us an email at kinatomic at gmail.com. Today, I think our main point of focus is anti-war film. But before that, let's see what Nick's been watching. Yeah, so um, I I went to I went to part to the cinema. Um, I went and saw uh, the Suicide Squad, the new film from James Gunn, the Yay. the new comic book movie. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, no, it is. It is really, really fucking good. Um, does it have Viola Davis in it, or am I wrong? It does. It does. Yes. Okay, because I thought I saw her in a poster, and I'm like, is that Viola Davis? Yeah, she plays um, Amanda Waller, who is the kind of like the head honcho of Task Force Gex, and she basically is. I don't want to say like she's basically the big. She's more evil than the bad guys that she's overseeing if that makes any sense is she good at being evil oh god yeah she's excellent she does the whole like spitting venom thing better than most other people i mean she was one of the best 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 things of the, the, the the original suicide squad which came out a few years ago and she's definitely very good in this as well um yeah i mean james gunn i mean he's a director that I've been a fan of for, uh, I mean, a long time. I mean, I remember when Slither came out back in 05, I think it was. Um, and, I mean, that's a film which is incredibly gross, but has this, I don't know, this kind of B-movie heart at the, at, the, at the middle of it, which kind of, I don't know, there's a charm to it. Um, his follow-up, Super, um, is a is a very, very good small little i don't know movie on delusion and superheroes <laughs> um and then obviously you, you went on and did the the two guardians of the galaxy movies um and it's kind of like the suicide squad it, it basically takes his outsider because he, he has his love of the outsiders i mean you think about guardians of the galaxy like who would have thought that the the biggest character to come out of that would have been the talking raccoon. Um, you know, that that's what he does. Like he, he does this love of the outsider very, very well. And Suicide Squad is full of that. Um, okay. Uh, without, without going too much into spoilers. I mean, I, I didn't think, I mean, comic book nerds will understand what I'm saying here, but I didn't think a movie that involved polka dot man, rat catcher to King shark and, yeah, uh, Weasel would be so full of heart, um, and yeah. So I really, really enjoyed it. It is the best, but one of the better DCEU movies. Although that's not saying much. 
um, especially ones that don't involve Zack Snyder. Um, and it, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's got a really great uh, R-rated center to it um, that is really great to see on, on the big screen. Um, away from that, um, me, I, I, I felt like watching a movie when I came from work for the other night, so I was like, said to Matt, so I was like scrolling through Amazon Prime, and I was just looking for a nice 90 minute movie that he hadn't seen, and I came across What We Do in the Shadows. Um, the, my, probably my fourth re, fourth watch of the film, first time with an actual housemate, um, and yeah, no, that film is still hilarious. I um, love that film. Still hilarious, and I it made know. me, it made me look at Taika's filmography and have a look and see what films I hadn't, I hadn't seen. And apart from a couple of short movies, the big one that stood out was a film called Boy that he did in two thousand and ten. Um, fun. yeah. So I wrote a piece on my website. Um which is perhaps probably the most personal thing I've ever written. Um, I I don't know what it is. Like, I've spoken in the past about how representation matters and how, for me, I you know, it wasn't really until Thor Ragnarok that I saw somebody who looked like me on the big screen. Um, boy, it's more than you just... You should have seen this film longer, uh, a while ago. Yes, I know, it was, I know. It, it's been a while for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, but there, there, as, I, as I wrote in my piece, there is a reason why um, that I hadn't seen, I hadn't watched it, um, because I knew, I took one I took one read of the synopsis way back when and, and knew that this would be a film that would hit me, not yeah. just on a on a... On a on, not on a thematic level, but on like comparing it to my own life's experiences. Um, there is a lot of thematic stuff in there and a lot of character stuff in there, which is very eerily similar to what I went through. So I wrote all about it on my uh, on my website. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. So it's on my Twitter page at the moment as well. And yeah. Um, it's up to you guys if you want to read it, but <laughs> I wrote it last night, and then I get messages this morning from my mum and my dad and my sister, and you know, asking if I'm okay. So that's kind of how how it was watching that. Um, I didn't I didn't expect that film to kind of. I told I did... you when you told me you're gonna watch it that it hit me hard, even even though it just it's about a boy who doesn't look anything like me. But I felt a lot of connections there so i can't even begin to imagine what you must have felt like and i'm actually afraid of reading your piece because i feel it's too personal and i don't want to go that i mean um, but yeah it's it's a great film and I, it i found correlations between me and 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 that boy yeah yeah even though it, it didn't at first it didn't feel like it would be anything similar but yeah it's a great i think taika waititi is 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 a very very good filmmaker and the way I, he he tells yeah. a story with comedy is just unbelievably astute. I think I want I, as much as I like seeing him in the playground of Marvel and in the playground of you know he's he's going to be doing a Star Wars movie you know due to come out in twenty twenty four. As much as I like that idea of Taika Waititi in that playground, I just. 
I don't know, like this between Boy and, and Hunt for the Wilder People, and you know the the the, sh- the short movie Two Cars One Night, which I watched as well. I want to see him just in this with because he has a, a very unique point of view, um, you know it, and one that I think needs to see, you know, there needs to be more stories told from that, you know. As and like I said, as much as I like seeing him, you know, like doing the Marvel movie, doing the you know popping up in a dc movie popping up in you know these big blockbusters and stuff and you know doing a star wars movie you know i want to see more of the stuff that i saw in boy and of what i saw in in hunt for the world people i see i see what you're saying it's more personal and it's more like smaller budget movies than than the spectacle that is marvel make it i think is is where he shines the most i'm not saying that marvel isn't what he did with with thor isn't great because it is it's absolutely amazing but i prefer like hunt for the world of people boy what we do in the shadows georgia rabbit is brilliant i see i i as time's gone on, like I think my opinion of Jojo Rabbit's kind of soured a little bit. Um, I think I need to rewatch it. I've seen it quite <sighs> recently. I've not seen it. I think I've seen. I had not seen it when it came out. I saw like a year later on on HBO. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I thought the kid was very very good. Yeah, and I the mean, script that's... was great. I think he won an Oscar for the script, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah. I th- I there was just something something about that movie that i don't know I, I think maybe i need to revisit it um the other movie uh, he did was uh i think it was one of the first movies he did was a film called eagle versus shark um i don't, I don't know if you've I've seen, seen that. that one no um it, it is a very difficult film it's a very much like a first film kind of feel to it um and he hasn't it it, it does come across as though he hadn't quite um mastered his humor if that makes any sense mastered his way of telling the stories he want to says and it just comes across as awkward um so yeah i mean I, eagle versus shark is 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 i mean jermaine clemens in it and he's you know he's always good in, in stuff so um yeah yeah so that's basically what i've been doing. i've been um filling in the the, the taika waititi blanks what have you what have you been up to so I think I think we've been through this um, on the bonus podcast. I seen I went to the BFI last week and I went to see quite a few Betty Davis films. Um, the letter. So basically, I went down a William Wyler rabbit hole. The letter, Jezebel, The Little Foxes. Um, I've seen the restored uh, version of of Now Voyager, which is brilliant as usual and recently i um i'm 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 always using audible to listen to books so now there's like audible plus which is free for for members and i found some interesting books there about all classic hollywood stars and there was one called the purple diaries it's about mary astor and i think you've seen mary astor in the maltese falcon Yep. So you kind of know her face. Yeah. And um, basically, the Purple Diaries is about um, it's it's a book uh, 
detailing to like great lengths um, the custody battle that she went through in 1936 to gain custody of her um, daughter. She went through a bitter divorce with her second husband, Franklin Thorpe. He was a doctor, he was not um, a filmmaker, but it was, it, it got quite messy, mostly because she had, uh, he, he got hold of her personal diaries in which she detailed lots of extramarital affairs. And yeah, it got a bit, uh, it got quite sensitive and yeah, very messy. Um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to sort of mention this was that there's during this whole battle in 1936, there's this, there's this film directed by none none other than William Wyler, of all people, um, and it it details the, the the sort of behind the scenes and what they filmed and how how they did it and how she managed to sort of juggle being on the on the film set by day and then showing up in court by by evening and it kind of stir, stirred me want to want to want to watch it and i found it online and i watched it on i think it was amazon prime or hbo go and it's it's brilliant film i did not it, i think it was the first film i've seen with uh, of where walter houston is the lead because i've seen uh I've seen some him, uh, some of his movies where he plays like a secondary character, like Treasures of the Sierra Madre, where he's there, but it's mostly Bogart's film. In this, you kind of see why he was considered such a good actor. So if you have if you ever had the chance to watch, uh, it's called Dadsworth, and it's it's a brilliant, very modern take on marriage, but not like it's it's basically it's after the marriage has had a happy ending you sort of fast forward 20 years later and this guy uh, Samuel Dodsworth he's he's been in the autom automobile industry and he's been very successful and he wants to retire to enjoy his the rest of his life alongside his wife and what do they do like people of great means they just go traveling traipsing around Europe and this is where things get a bit messy because she wants different things from him she's more like high maintenance and she wants theatre and wants culture and he wants to do things he, he's not the sort of person that wants to sit around and in in a parlor listening to someone talk about literature or whatnot he wants to do things and, and be, make himself useful so there's a lot of friction there and it, it the film was brilliantly showing that it just and it, it might sound a bit boring to somebody if, like if audiences of 2021 but i really think it it's really good film and the performances are great the writing is very subtle um it's got ruth chatterton mary astor obviously and um walter houston directed by william Wilder. I was gonna say, like you know, I've, William Wyler films I've seen have been, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I've had a single complaint of any of them. Um, he so is an it, artist. The more I see of his films, the more I love him. Yeah. Would would it would it would it be? Would you want to get it onto season three? Well, let's see how we go with season three. It might happen. It might not. Have a look at the synopsis, and if you find um, another film that would match it. I'm willing to give it a try. No problem.
Or maybe we can do a bonus episode of all like William Wyler special. <laughs> See, I'm catering to your every need with this, aren't I? So we've had the Buster Keaton, we've had the Betty Davis. Yeah, so. I need to. I need to return the favor, won't I? I am willing to do Tom Cruise, maybe, or we'll something. See. Paul W.S. Maybe. We'll uh, half heartedly. Let's let's see how we go. Because yeah, I've been, I've been, yeah. Anyway, uh, shall we move on to the burning topic of the day? Yes, yeah, let's uh, let's move on. Okay, so we will start with a film from nineteen thirty-seven, directed by Jean Renoir. I think we've had one Jean Renoir film on the podcast, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Le Bet Humain. Yes, that is correct. Um, this film is from 1937 called La Grande Illusion. Um, it just feels weird to say The Grand Illusion because it doesn't feel the same way. I don't know about you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it no matter what, so um, I'm just going <laughs> to stick with Grand Illusion. Fine, that's fine. Here's a quick synopsis. During the First World War, two French soldiers are captured and imprisoned in a German uh, POW camp. Several escape attempts follow until they are eventually sent to a seemingly inescapable fortress. So what do you think of La Grande Illusion? I think that the film... Like... I, I I had to think about this the the film you know with the because I watched this after Thin Red Line, so it was a case of like oh I need to try and think of similarities between the two and maybe you know try and tackle it that way, um because I think if I was to go the other direction and just go oh this is what the film's about then I think you know I'm going to struggle with you know we when we do end up talking about how film is how each film kind of tackles the the same subject i think with this it shows that war is this universal constant you know that according according to the characters here you know war breaks our delusion you know we've we've deluded ourselves into thinking that we're all different different classes you know backgrounds intellectual you know you know how we, how we think and war doesn't have time for this, you know. Even when when we we as humans attempt to continue it on, you know, you know, our, our nationalities demand us to find a fight. You know, we're all the same at the end of the day. And the this the messaging of this of John Wenra's war film is is to kind of pre- present class as this struggle, as this boundary to be broken. You know, much in the same way as as uh, the rules of the game. Um, I think, I think the film, and said it shows humans, we as humans are the same, and you know, we like we said, we delude ourselves into thinking different, and it's this delusion that causes war and conflict and aggression, and I think this film is is a universal film about a universal truth. Um, I think the messaging of the film is its greatest strength. You know, I, I really did admire the filmmaking. Uh, <coughs> which, which isn't showy. I mean, I thought, I th- if I remember rightly, I thought that Bette Humane had some really great filmmaking in it, but I thought this was a bit more thoughtful and deliberate. Um, there isn't a, a wasted frame or, or movement. 
um, you know, even even the sets and the locations kind of reinforce the themes of the film. Um, I didn't expect kind of how showy the first half of the movie is in the first POW Shelly. camp. Yeah, so in almost, I don't know, like with the performance, num- you know, with that little musical number, with the, the idea that, you know, the they're digging a tunnel out and they're dumping the way they're dumping the dirt into the garden it it just i don't know it feels it felt a bit more light-hearted in tone than i was expecting um if that makes any sense and then and then the film you know and, and then the film you know goes to the kind of you know like you said this fortress and um you know it it gets a a bit more i don't know real at that point um jean how do you spell it how do you say his name jean gabin jean gabin yeah um you know i think i said this when we did Bat humane but he has a really interesting face um, he does doesn't he it, it, it really tells a story you know i really enjoyed his presence in Bat humane and, and i i really do continue to be fascinated by him in this um yeah i said i i i did i was really kind of captivated by the movie um but you didn't really enjoy it it's really hard so i think i've I've given it i've given it four four and a half stars on on letterboxd and that is more to do with because i appreciate what it's doing you know i appreciate its place in the grand I think I might have misread it. Okay. Okay. Um, but no, it, finish your notes and and then we can sort of talk about it. Yeah, a no, bit I, more if you want. I, no, I, I'm kind of I kind of pretty much like like done with it. I think I I I've done my notes. So if I if I understand correctly, you were saying that the the illusion lies with the fact that we're all the same. We're all going to die the same. And yeah. war doesn't really care about it, and war will just like level it all up. Pretty much, that's how I read I think, it. No, it's it's true that that's kind of one of the one of the readings, and and it, it, it's not a wrong reading. So sorry if I said that before, um, but there's I think there's more to it than that because so it will level it. But I think ultimately, if we look at it with if we look at like back at history, because this is this history was very very close to the real history that it was portraying, because it was only like twenty years after the the events, so they had very little time to look back and and see that, according to some historians, ultimately that war was necessary to level things out, to do away with the bourgeoisie and and all the the aristocracy of both france germany and to some extent the uk really uh, because people started to live differently after the first war didn't they more frugally than than the lavish way they did before the imperialism was kind of on on the wane after the first war and in that way you're right it, it the war doesn't care what what social class you're from but at the same time it just feels that it 
there's there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke about the whole film and that's why it's so funny in the first half it's it's kind of like a wink at the idea that war will never happen because the the title of the film is a reference to a book called The Great Illusion by Norman Angel, in which it is argued that war is unscientific, out of fashion, it's it's absurd, it will never happen. A a long European war will never happen. The book, by the way, was published in 1909. So at the time, it was a well-known book and it was cited as proof that a long European war will never happen. Uh, we're we're not stupid enough to engage in in such in such destructive war. Um, you know, less than ten years later, five years later, it was happening. And less than two years after this movie came out, it was again happening again. So I think the idea is is all absurd, but we're living in the absurd, if that makes sense. So you're saying that I should view this movie more of a, um, like, you know, absurdist... It's rather the, absurd. Along, along the yeah. same lines as Rules of the Game kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's the same filmmaker. And, and Jean Renoir also participated in writing the film. So he... Um, there was a lot of improv as well because he, he let the, the, the characters... Well, the actors be... Have a backstory of all of every character they were playing. So, if you remember when the movie starts, uh, Jean Gabin's character Mar- Marshal, he has a date with this woman, and he's aching to go, but he can't because he's just been given a new mission. After which, he got caught by by the enemy line. So it's like date over. All you know, all his ideas of love just dashed. Um. And yeah, and also it's just so interesting to see because this film was made a very interesting time in 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 history. This um, I found this really interesting uh, story that Joseph Goebbels made sure that the, the film sprint was one of the first things seized by the Germans when they occupied France in 1940. Oh. He he referred to Jean Renoir as cinematic public enemy number one. And for many years, it was it was assumed that the film had been destroyed by by the Nazis. However, um, a German film archivist, um, Frank Hansel, he smuggled it to, back to Berlin. And then, when the Russians entered Berlin in 1945, somehow the film found its way to an archive in Moscow. So when Jean Renoir wanted to restore the film in the 1960s, he didn't actually know that Hansel's had done this. And he was finally working from like an old print that he found. Around the same time, the Russian archive was sort of swapping material with an archive in Toulouse. Included in the exchange, there was the original negative print. And it was only 30 years in like mid 90s that anybody realized that the version in Toulouse was actually the original negative. And I think, and this was, this I think led to the first DVD spine of the Criterion Collection. Because in the Criterion Collection, spine number one is this film. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
So it, it's quite interesting because it, it has a, a lot of history around it, but it presents history as well. Um, and it, I don't know if you noticed, but it was actually shot on, on, a, on a quite a tight budget because you have, he would, I think Jean Renaud wanted to show some sort of action scenes like shots of planes or airfields, air, aerial combat. But then you see characters, leave, you see uh, Jean Gabin leaving to go on a mission. And then the next scene you have Eric von Stroheim walking through saying, we've captured an enemy um, pilot. And then he comes in with his hand in a sling. Um, you don't see them being shot down and captured. It's just the aftermath of something. And that happens a lot in the film. It's the aftermath of something. And that I think that's where the, the film is so powerful because it's always the aftermath of something and how it affects people. I think you, you, you're reading it right in, in saying that it's all about human beings being human, uh, but it's also slightly putting war to the side and saying that, you know, we, we can still be civil to one another, ultimately and it, i think they also has a bit of a romantic view to the german nobility represented by von Stroheim's character because he's very civil and he's quite courteous the way he looks after the the, the officers once they're in his camp um um by the way what did you think of eric Stroheim's performance it was very good very good <laughs> I, 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 it took me a while to kind of figure out that his neck was in a brace when we saw him the second time. Yeah, again, um, it, it's it's basically he talks about how many injuries he's had, how many battles he's fought in the interim between the first time we meet him and the first the second time, and it's again it's it the war is somewhere far away. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he was he's he's a, he's a quite a good character. Um, I've read that he developed his own character and his own lines, like the backstory of everything. He, there was a, a very tight collaboration between him and and Jean Renoir, and they had a really good mutual respect. And I think the film has this parallel between von Stroheim's character, who is who's a, a nobleman. He's part of the aristocracy in Germany and um, Pierre Frenet's character um, de Bourdieu the sort of aristocratic officer uh, they have I don't know if you noticed but they have a bit of a bond yeah and they f they seem to be like part of the aristocracy that's on the wane and if you paid attention there's 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 at the, towards the end there's there's a exchange between them and they say that for normal for like the working class people war is a tragedy because they will die and nothing will come of them for them war is the only noble way out so to speak because yeah. it's the only like yeah it's not it's the only destiny that will not feel cowardly because otherwise they will have to give up the way of life and they can't imagine that. And uh, I found an interesting quote that it appears in 
in a, um, a review from the Criterion Collection, um, it's attributed to Jean Renoir. And he says, if a French farmer found himself dining with a French financier, those two Frenchmen wouldn't have nothing to say to each other. But if a French farmer meets a Chinese farmer, they will find any a lot of stuff to talk about. And I think that's kind of the gist of the movie. They will, regardless of war, regardless of, of, of language barriers or borders of any kind, because basically, ultimately, nationality is arbitrary. You don't choose the country you live in. Um, but we're all people and we can all get along ultimately. And that's why in the second half of the film, you see the sort of bonding and connection with, with the um, the widow, the German widow who actually helps them. Yeah. And again, yeah. and the idea of, of sort of, even though we're enemies, we can still be people and, and act, be respectful to one another and, and be civil. I think maybe, um, and I yeah. Think, yeah, I was going to say that like, I think, I think maybe like I, because I think I viewed this film with the wrong headspace, I think, like, because I went in, I almost went in expecting something like, you know, all quiet on the Western Front or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like something really dour and, and, you know, dark and and you know sad and yeah something, you know like i expected that you know that's what i went in expecting i i didn't expect something like i said that you know where i i, I should have what you know I, I i should be in the frame of mind that of something like rules of the game you know I, that's what i should have had in my head and i think <laughs> yeah i think maybe watching this after thin red line may have been a mistake um i think maybe it detracted somewhat from my viewing of the film maybe because of the tonal shift i think yeah um yeah but yeah. if you think about like the historical aspect of it you have to think about what was happening at the time in 19 because yeah. it starts in 1914 when when the, when the war starts and how it, it was a long war that killed a lot of people but ultimately on the other side there were massive shifts across europe and it started with the sort of more or less disappearance of the old aristocracy. And in this film, is, is, it's quite heavily represented by Eric von Stronheim and Pierre Manet. So, um, and, and the bonding between these disappearing worlds, I think, is quite quite strong. And, and also the idea, the, the sort of, acceptance and and like the noble way of accepting it well when when um what's his name pierre fanet uh, capitaine bourdieu when he when he's on his deathbed eric von stroheim is actually apologizing to him and he's actually wants him to live he can't live of course but he's if he dies he knows that he's going to be next kind of thing you know and he's seeing his sort of he feels like he's more a cap it feels more camaraderie with this frenchman than he's part of the part of the platoon that he's he's leading 
And he feels that he probably should have died on the front, but he kept being patched up. That's why you see him all. It's like my face is, my hands are burned. My uh, spine has been sort of shattered and I have to wear this brace thing. And they've put me on this, leading this uh, POW camp because I can't fight anymore. And it's quite shameful the way he has to go. Um, and, you know, not cowardly, but he feels more or less cowardly. And maybe that's why um, Captain Baudieu, he has to sacrifice himself for the sake of his of his men and to give them a chance to, to escape. I do think, you know, something just kind of dawned on me. I think the, the film is almost a couple of Ben Elton and Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry casting away <laughs> from being a Blackadder episode. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. I um, I'll link to the... Uh, yeah, no, it's true. It could be It could be a bit like that. Um, so, yeah, when... I think when they released um, this film, like Spy Number One, there was a very good um, article um, review on Criterion by P- Peter Cowie. And I'll link to it in the show notes, but I just wanted to give a quick quote that I think summarizes the film very well. Um, quote... In Grand Illusion, everyone learns to give and take without betraying his essential personality, without denying differences of language and education. The prisoners sustain themselves with small delusions, digging a tunnel by night, dressing up in drag to remind themselves of the womanhood that has no place in prison life, celebrating the smallest and most fleeting of victory, victories as news filters in from the front, or most pathetic of all, von Raffenstein's careful tending of a geranium in his fortress bedroom. End quote. So I think there's this, aside from the absurdist approach, I think there's a really good poetic approach to to this film. And I think there's the, the streak of, of poetry and maybe humanity for lack of a better word, is is present in both this film and the other film that we're going to talk about. Yeah, no, I, th- I th- no, yeah, no, I do agree. No, I do, I do agree. Um, although you know, I I think the the next film we're going to be talking about has a slightly, it does it does kind of dwell on that humanity, like you said, but it ha- I think it has another kind of, I don't want to say yeah, almost like an agenda to it. I think. Um. But yeah, should we? Um, should we, yeah, should we, we can, move I think on? We, I think I think this is the the cue to talk about the other. <laughs> this this is the cue. <laughs> um, right, so we're gonna gotta go from uh, Criterion Spine Number One to Criterion Spine Number Three Five Six, uh, Five Three Six. Sorry, um, <laughs> um, The Thin Red Line uh, from nineteen ninety eight, directed by Terence Malick. Um, this film stars. Uh, everybody yeah i'm just gonna say that everybody um like all the male all the men in hollywood are in this film yeah i was yeah i was i was always trying to imagine what your reaction was to certain people showing up (laughs) um anyway so this so this movie um i've got a brief brief synopsis um the thin red line tells the story of a group of men an army rifle company called c for charlie 
who change suffering and ultimately make essential discoveries about themselves during the fierce World War II battle of Guadalcanal. It follows their journey from the surprise of an opposed, unopposed landing through the bloody and exhausting battles that followed to the ultimate departure of those who survived. So, um, this is our first Terence Malick film on the podcast. Um, so, Danny, what, what did you think of The Thin Red Line? Well, like I said, I think, yeah, I, I spent the first half hour going, huh? Woody Harrison's in it? John C. Riley's in it? What? Look, Adrian Brody's in it. Uh, Nick Nolte's in it. Ben Chaplin's in it. Jim Caviezel. What? John Travolta. Like, my mind was like, what? <laughs> um, and of course, I was a bit scared at first when I realized that this film was two and fifty, two hours and fifty minutes long. And then I realized that it's 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 a Terrence Malick film, so there's going to be a lot of clouds, a lot of skies, a lot of grass, a lot of grass. <laughs> yeah, plains and plains and hills and and green hills and a lot of. Um, but it, it's not saying that. That that was bad. I think that we we could have used more of that and less of the carnage and horrible fighting and and dying sequences. That I'll get to it in a minute. Um, but yeah, I I think Terence Malick is is quite a poetic director, and I like him for it. And to see him approach a theme like war with this usual style was was definitely interesting to see i i think i did enjoy it um i loved you know i love how uh, during a, an action sequence the camera kind of pans out from the action and goes to s- look at an interesting leaf or some creatures creepy crawlies up in the in in the trees and I love that. And it just feels like these are animals and they're living a peaceful life. But then there's people not leaving, uh, leading a peaceful life. Who's the beast here? You know, it just made me think of that. And it, yeah, it just raises a lot of questions about how horrible we are to each other, really. Um, I thought, yeah, Ben Chaplin and Jim Caviezel were were outstanding. I really loved their performances, and I would have, I would have actually spent two hours listening to Ben uh, um, Jim Caviezel talk about how much he loved being on that island that he gets sort of yanked from at the beginning of the movie by Sean Penn, bastard Sean Penn. Should have left him on the island, shouldn't he? <laughs> Um, yeah, Nick Nolte always plays someone you'd love to punch in the face and he does it very well. And it just made me think of, of, you know, you kind of see that he has an agenda and he's kind of sick and tired of, of sucking up to somebody else. And he has to prove himself because it's his last, his last chance to make a name of himself. But it feels he's lost the plot and... It kind of feels a bit relatable because you you kind of see that it's like he's desperate to to make the right decision, but in this desperation he makes the wrong decision because that's what people do, and that's what that's why it's so relatable. You 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 kind of hate him, but you you think maybe I would have done the same if I had been in his shoes. Um, 
but yeah, lots of cameos. I think, yeah. Um, I'm gonna butcher his name because I don't know what his name. What to pronounce? Elias Codius. Uh, yeah. I I like him. I was I've always been slightly confused whether it was him or Mark Strong because I in my mind it looked quite similar, <laughs> and I'm like, is that Mark Strong or is that the guy from Fallen? And it yeah. was the guy from Fallen. Um, but yeah, I I liked it. I thought it was a very moving film about the atrocities of war, and with graphic detail of of said atrocities. I have to say that I probably I liked it more than Saving Private Ryan, which came the same came out the same year. I mean, I it was, was very I different. Was waiting, I was waiting for that. Yeah, comparison. of course. I didn't. I didn't disappoint. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to compare because they're both very similar films in in essence, but so different. They're yeah. so different because Spielberg and and Malik, they're very different filmmakers, and they see different things, like completely different things. Uh, I do think that this film, because of the of the personal and aspect of it. it it moved me. It moved me more than Saving Private Ryan. I loved the voiceovers, and I, I, th I think they added um, gravitas to the whole story. And that's why, whenever there was a lingering shot on a tree or or a cloud, you weren't, oh God, rolling your eyes. If it if that had happened without the voiceovers, you might have been like, "What is he on about?" But you have the voiceovers, and you have all the people going like, "We have our dreams, and we have to get home, and we have to we have to live." When there's a lot of stuff happening in our lives, and this war is just stopping that, and it just yeah, it just helped bring out the humanity to the fore, and also the inhumanity and. I think that scene in like the attack to, on on the Japanese camp, I did not expect to be so moved by it because I broke down crying and I didn't expect to to break down and crying, but I cried during that whole sequence because I was you could see people being afraid and it wasn't like oh god these are the enemy these these people are enemy they weren't they were just people and i think it was very effectively done that it was just people being people fighting for their country yeah and yeah um i i enjoyed it as much as one can enjoy a film that will upset you to the very core and and make you hate human race really because you know, ultimately, we we I think we are we have it in our DNA to kill each other until no, no nobody's left. If if we if history has ever taught us anything is that we are we have a murderous streak in us, um, but we also we can also do good. Yeah. Um, which is why I think the, the the parallel between these two films is is so well done because you you have this film where it's just we're just people, regardless of nationality. But at the same time, you have these the other way where people become animals in the jungle and they don't really care. Yeah. 
I mean, there's there's been examples on both sides, really. But yeah, I think the the main theme is anti-war, and it's been exemplified brilliantly by both filmmakers, both Jean Renoir and Terence Malick. Yeah, no, I. It's, I mean, there. I'm trying to get the right way to say this. So, you had you said in not yet you had Saving Private Ryan and, and then and Third Red Line came out a few months later. I think both films are anti-war films. I mean, I think they, um, I think they're the first ones probably since Platoon, which don't glorify war. I think you know from from Apocalypse Now onwards. You know, you have this kind of sense of we needed to start showing war as this thing that wasn't to be glorified. You know, this is a far cry from the, you know, gung ho John Wayne war films of the fifties. You yeah. know, um, and I think from Apocalypse Now to Platoon to Saving Private Ryan of the Red Line, I think there's a, a definite attempt to. Be a lot more grounded, I think. Um, both films are very uh, obviously tackle the same kind of thing, um, but they do it in different ways because of the different filmmaker. You know, Spielberg is Spielberg. You know, he is the great commercial artist. I think yeah. is the best way to describe him. Uh, whereas Terrence True. Malick is the non-commercial artist. Yeah, he's the philosopher. He's the philosopher. He's the. He's the more. Of, I think he's more of a poet. Yeah, he's the poet, he's the philosopher, he's the contem contemplative look, you know, ponders the grand scheme of things. This film, yeah. it, 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 every time I watch it, it, it knocks me on my ass, and for a different reason each time. And then I think this time it was a case of I viewed it through the lens of, of what you know why we're talking about on this episode you know what is it that captivates me so much about this film and i think it's because malik seems more preoccupied with the relationship between war and nature than between man and war and when i say nature i don't just mean the trees and the you know the animals i think he means i think i'm talking about what makes us human you know, when I when I'm talking about between man and war, I'm, I'm you know speaking more about the politics side of things. Um, you know, this is a war film which is more about life than death. You know, there is a tragedy to war. You know, a, a destruction, but I think through Private Wit, you know, Jim Caviezel's character, most obviously, you know, we are we are referred to kind of take in this beauty in what is around us in this face of death. You know, that life will event will come through. Um, that's kind of how I how I read read the film this time. Um, there's so I got a couple a couple of sources. Um, one's from a Slate article from 2010, which is just before the well, it was in in correlation with the Criterion release. Um, and I can't remember who wrote it. Um, I think it was Jessica Winter. I'll link to this in the show notes. Um, but she states that it's a film about a collective unconsciousness 
and perhaps you could say it was made by one too. The thin red line was created by man, undoubtedly in search of the great cosmic truth about war and nature and mankind and the whole damn thing. Um, and Peter Peter Biskind, um, you know, the author behind you know Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. He did a he did a piece around about the same time the film came just before the film came out in Vanity Fair with the two of the producers, um, which caused quite a bit of a stir. I'll link to this in the show notes. It's like it's an archive link, but it's a really it's a fascinating read. Um because, you know, Malik isn't the kind of filmmaker to give interviews. Um <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't do interviews, he doesn't do pictures you know for years we didn't really know what he actually looked like kind of thing you know um and he in the in this piece he kind of he writes malik as this kind of elusive enigmatic difficult and brilliant filmmaker um there's a quote from producer robert michael geisler in this piece and he says and quote Malek's Guadalcanal would be a paradise lost, an Eden, raped by the green poison, as Terry used to call it, of war. Much of the violence was to be portrayed indirectly. A soldier is shot, but rather than showing a Spielbergian bloody face, we see a tree explode, the shredded vegetation, and a gorgeous bird with a broken wing flying out of a tree. So... They're trying to fly out. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know that's that's what Malik does in this is he is he is thinking about around the conflict rather than the conflict itself, and when that what that around the conflict is is what it also does to us as humans, and we see that like you said in that in that sequence with the storming of the Japanese camp, which is a, is a very difficult sequence to watch. Yeah, it was just horrible. Um, so, like I said, Peter Riskin wrote this this kind of breakdown of the production and its issues of kind of getting this 20-year absentee of Malik back to filmmaking because this was his first film in 20 years. Uh, the last film he made before this was Days of Heaven, which came out in 1978. Um, and that, you know, not for lack of trying, you know, uh, the way, you know, he tried to get certain films made. I mean, there was this film... You know, he had script for called Q from like the early eighties that eventually became Tree of Life. Um, it wasn't for a lack of trying, but this Peter Biskin thing is is fascinating if you want to look into it. Uh, the business of Hollywood and trying to get someone like Malik to work on a film. Um, it doesn't necessarily paint him in a positive light, if I'm being honest. Um, but I'm putting that more down to Peter Biskin's style of writing than. What, and who he's reporting from rather than the actual, you know, person itself. Um so in this in this piece and, and, and around you you'll find this, you know, all over the place. But so when word I mean, this is a bit this is all background stuff now, this is production stuff. So when word got around out in Hollywood that uh, he was returning from twenty years away, Malik's casting agent and the producers were met with barrages of calls from agents and actors and actresses wanting to work on the film there's a great there's a great line um of the producers saying that you know agents will phone them up for actresses and it's just like there aren't any women in this film there's a picture there's a photograph of a woman and they'll be like we want that we want her to be this and we want her to be the photograph she'll well, do there it there is one character one yeah female the, character. yeah 
Um, no, two. I think there's there's a shot with um, Jim Caruso's mother. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, at the beginning. Um, so I'm just going to list off some names of people that who met with Malik. Uh, Edward Norton, Matthew McConaughey, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Nick Cage, and Tom Sizemore all met with Malik. Uh, Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Gary Oldman and Bruce Willis all offered to work for a fraction of a price or even for free to be in the movie um, yep. Sean Penn uh, said that pay me a dollar and show me where and when to go and I'll do it um, <laughs> actors Bill Pullman Mickey Rourke and Lucas Haas all filmed scenes for the film but were cut entirely from the film mm. um yeah, entire characters with massive parts, uh, notably ones played by Adrian Brody and John C. Riley, were cut to a bare minimum. Adrian Brody reportedly went to the premiere expecting this character that he says helped carry the movie, you know, to be a big part of it. And in his words, it was reduced to two speaking lines and five minutes of screen time. Um, and like he said, big name actors like John Travolta and George Clooney became cameos, um, even though George Clooney was very prominent in the you know, in, in the marketing of the movie, he literally shows up at yeah. the end. Um, yeah, this one scene at the end. <laughs> this one will make you... Uh... So you said about the narration. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton recorded hours of narration, but this was scrapped. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. What did he say? Do we know? Um, no, we, we don't. We just know that he recorded hours of narration for a cut of the film. Um, but it was it was it was scrapped. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think, report. I think we should have the director's cut where everything is included. I mean, so like the, a five-hour epic. Yeah, well, the, the the first version of this I think was apparently meant to be five hours long. Um, and that's only because Malik refused to kind of sit down and look at an edit, and they had to literally sit him down and just go this is what you've got almost and it took forever to get it edited down um reports are that malik actually edited the film one reel at a time with the sound off whilst listening to a green day cd green day yes green day wow yeah um uh after initial screenings for critics and financiers um which he wasn't happy about malik wasn't happy about because he didn't want to screen it for anybody until it was finished um, Sean Penn actually helped Malik with the edit um, to the, to, for the final cut of the film. Oh, that's why he's prominent in the film. I think maybe, but I think I maybe. Um, <laughs> who's to say? Sneaky, um, sneaky, we, she's sneaky, Sean. Naughty. But, but you know, he does go on to work with you know Malik in in Tree of Life. Um, yeah. So that I think there's more to do with the fact that Sean Penn and Manic kind of see eye to eye on on film. I suppose. Um possibly. That's well, that's me be me. At least he at least he, he did work with Brad Pitt later on. Right? Yes, 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 he did, yeah, Brad Pitt in, in uh in Tree of Life, yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, um I think the 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 one that I thought was funny, or two of them I thought was funny, was apparently Nick Cage met him um, in Mexico, I think. No, 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 it wasn't it. It was um, Leonardo DiCaprio flew from Mexico on off the set of Romeo and Juliet to meet him in an airport lobby um, to discuss working on the film. Um, that's kind of the lengths that people would go to. Apparently, Bruce Willis even offered to pay, you know, costs for you know 
production staff and stuff as well, so that he could have a few lines in the movie. Um, that's kind of what Malik does. What Malik did, you know, back then, you know, even to this day, you know, like he went through this three-year period a few years back where you know he had a film out every year and it was like Ben Affleck, Olga Kurienko, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender, you name it. Act, the big name actors were in a Malik movie. Um, mm. I haven't seen any of those movies, but you know, um, the film was also nominated for a few Oscars, the seventy first Academy Awards. Um, this was also the Oscars uh, where Cyber and Private Ryan was robbed of um, best oh, picture. God. Oh, don't get me. You know, you know why that happened, yeah? By Shakespeare in Love. Um, I didn't know. You why, know the... why, did, why did that happen? Well, it happened because of marketing and money thrown at, like, a lot of lobbying because I think the production company behind Shakespeare in Love was led by somebody called Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah, no, I've just seen, I've just seen his name, yeah. And he had money to support his campaign, Oscar campaign, which eventually won. So he's basically, I think he bribed a lot of people to vote for that horrible, well, not horrible, like, boring film named Shakespeare in Love. When one of the, I mean, oh, don't even, I think, I think this film should have probably won. I don't know, what else was there? Yeah, I mean, uh, so Best Picture that year, so you had Shakespeare in Love, which obviously won it, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Thin Red Line, Elizabeth, and Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. So I've not seen that, so... Um... Life is Beautiful, hands down. Okay. Um, yeah, and then, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow wins Best Leading Actress that. over Kate Blanchett. Yeah, but again, I mean... but Gwyneth won because, um, because yeah, of Harvey. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, so everybody yeah. fucking won because of Harvey that year. Um, that didn't age well, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't win. It didn't win any Oscars um, at all. I honestly oh, think it should have won at least one best score for Hans Zimmer. I mean, it's my opinion, Hans Zimmer's best score. Um, that is your I, opinion. It is. I I know. I there is a. Um... It's a very good score, but I have different opinions because i love hans zimmer and i think he did better later on with some other films in what one uh i don't know off the top of my head i think we've had this conversation before and you know what i'm going to say say it (laughs) so i know that you're gonna say (laughs) last samurai oh right yeah Uh, oh yeah this is that's how this is how we ended up with thin red line on the podcast because yes. we were talking about this, weren't we? And I said about Thin Red Line. Listen, the score of The Last Camera is exquisite. And uh, that is my opinion of, on the matter. Yeah, I, I prefer this, but that's just me. Of course you um, do. So, yeah, no, I... Um, this, though, is a Thin Red Line, it is... <coughs> um, is just astonishing, in my opinion. Um, it's a very good film. Yeah. And like I said, I, I I prefer it to the. How should I describe it? I mean, I like Saving Private Ryan. Populist is that a right way to say it? I don't know. Commercial. Yeah. Although I think I remember when I watched Saving Private Ryan, it just gave me nightmares because of that. 
one scene with the knife. Oh, right, yeah. That it was just so brutal that and and of course this scene this film has its own brutal sequence as well that made me cry but it just it has so much poetry to it and it just you want to you're gonna you you just felt like you wanted to i find i found it quite anti-american i don't know if you felt that way um I really don't on me to be honest. Because it just felt to me that it was just all this oh American um patriotism and we're gonna fight the Japs and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. And in the end it just it just everyone is the same and all, the Japanese are as patriotic as you are and they deserve to live as much as you do. It just felt like quite anti what I, what's I found striking is in that sequence right after they've just almost killed everybody from from the Japanese camp you have there's that scene where the the American soldier just sits there and he feels quite good about himself but you kind of know that he shouldn't be feeling good about himself at all because everyone around him is very very miserable yeah. and you see them and you see how miserable everybody is but then there's that cocky one that goes like yeah because you're american and it just felt like yeah can we just not be like that it felt like the typical american i think it's anti-typical americanism i don't know that's how i felt it it portrayed it sort of appeared on the screen because ultimately i know it's it's it might be a controversial opinion but ultimately i think the military, the American military, is what makes America great. Pun intended. It's just that's all there is about that country. There's nothing else. There's no cult. There's very little culture, but it's just like they've got the military. They've got the military force that is strongest, and that's yeah. where all the money. That's what well they've put all the money since the first since the Second World War. That's where all they've all the finances has gone into the making them like muscles. And I think that's why it's so blatant in this film. I don't know. That, that, that really, I don't know. Maybe, maybe on my on my next viewing, I can start yeah, thinking about yeah. it. On... It just, yeah, that, that's what I found it quite striking, and and it it was very jarring to see because it starts with Jim Caviezel's character, and he's very peaceful, and he's kind of. He's not your usual American, but the usual Americans are those that, for me at least, felt like the, you know the the one that would be punching the dead Japanese like lying on on the ground. I think I think like you see the John Travolta, you know, and yes, um, and, the, and, the Nick and, and Nick Nolte, and then Nick Nolte, you know, they are the typical until, American. And, yeah, and then at the end, you know, you get George Clooney doing doing that as well. Yeah, and, the, and that's movie... why I was just. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like the movie kind of takes takes a different view in that it 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 looks at the grunts, you know, the pri- you know, there's the reason why the main character is a private, you know, like you're looking at someone who is, you know, low down on the on the pecking order almost. You know, you see the people that have to answer to the people ab- above them, you know, John John Cusack and Elias Cotius, you know, that the captains are having to answer to Nick Nolte. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. No, I think it's a very like individualistic film. It's a bit a bit like La Grande Illusion, where everyone is is their own pe- person, regardless of 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 flag, if you will. But there's the few people that will, because in the name of the flag, will ruin it for everybody else. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. No. I think. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately it's anti anti nationalism. I think, like in in war films in general, like the Japanese forces are, are seen as. I mean, we'll get onto it, you know, in a couple of weeks. But about Japan, how the, how Japanese forces are kind of portrayed in media. Yeah. Um, like they are seen as. I don't not evil is the right word, but um there is a meanness to them. You know, they're they're they are lacking empathy, they are lacking you know, they are more ruthless than their German counterparts almost. The Japanese. Yeah. In, I don't think in, in, I don't when think it comes it's when that. it comes to, when it comes to war movies in in, you know, American media in particular. I I, that's, that's... I think yeah, and I think that's that's because they have such they have the Eastern discipline that is very different from the, the Western one. And yeah, where and I, they I have think... to get the job done at all costs. Which yeah, seems like... a bit barbaric to Western countries, which is why it's portrayed in the Western media the way it is. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like, you know, that the, the, we we don't understand that side of things, you know, is a as a culture that we are that is very, very foreign to us and as such we don't understand it. So then when it is portrayed in media, it is portrayed incorrectly. Yeah, because it's I've... not barbaric to be very dedicated to to what you're supposed to be doing and no. be. Yeah, I think Thin Red Line is very, very good at showing both sides as bad as each other and as good as each other and as what's the word as human human and... yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Um okay. Cool. Uh all right, yeah. I mean <laughs> I think uh, th- yeah. Th- that's kind of us. I mean with sub heavy subject matter today, I think. <laughs> yes. Yes. Heavy subject but, matter. Uh, let's see what have we got on for next week. So you you've completely forgotten. You don't know the schedule, do you at all? I don't. I never do. No. So um, I had to next... look it up this time round because we didn't have the question last week. No, we didn't when we did our Betty Davis thing. Um, no, so uh, next week um, is almost like it's almost like a head-to-head. Almost, it is uh, what we consider to be the best comedy that we've seen. <gasps> yes. So, Danny's film is uh, My Cousin Vinny, which which you have not seen. Which I have. Not I can't seen, believe no. it. Well, I'm not saying it's the best comedy I've ever seen, but I it's I think it's probably the best comedy that you haven't seen. Yeah, right. I think that's where we went with, isn't it? It's the best comedy that each of us hadn't seen. So Danny's film was My Cousin Vinny from 1992, directed by Jonathan Lynn, starring Joe Pesci, Ralph Macchio, Marissa Tomei. I love Marissa Tomei. Um, oh. I do as well. I, I I do like Marissa Tomei a lot as well. She's uh, drop dead yeah. gorgeous in this. <laughs> I can't See, wait I just... to... Yeah. I just think it's I'm just thinking. Great. Of, I know, so I'm just thinking of George Costanza and in, in Seinfeld. That's all I'm thinking. 
Oh no! Oh my god, that that episode cracks me up. Even just thinking about it, good. This where Susan's dead, and he's he meets up with her. He's just like she's dead now, so we can, you know, uh, yeah, oh, great. Poor George. Um, and then the film that I've chosen as the best comedy that Danny hasn't seen uh, is Anchorman: The Legend of Ron Burgundy, from two thousand four, uh. directed by Adam McKay, starring Will Ferrell. Christina Applegate, Paul Rudd, Steve Carell, David Koshner, Phil Willard. Yeah. I'm a slightly... Who's who, who's who of uh, comedic stars from the 2000s? No, I don't know. I mean, I, I have... I have, I put my trust... I put my faith in Paul Rudd. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, the yeah, rest I mean, of it... them, I don't know. Um, yeah. Paul Rudd, save me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think... I think my prediction for next week is that I'm going to love my cousin Vinny. You're going to love talking about my cousin Vinny. I'm going to revisit Anchorman and realise it's not as great as I once remembered. <laughs> and you're going to watch Anchorman and realise that Nick has terrible taste in movies sometimes. Um, that's how I think it's going to turn out. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Cool. Oh, yeah. All right. So we, we had we had to break up the, the heavy subject matter. So at least we've got some comedy next week. Right, so that's all up for next week. Um, uh, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at at Keynote John, and my Um, website is still under construction. Any any articles to plug? Well, yes, actually, she remembered. Yes, I'm actually just. Um, I didn't. I don't want to brag about it because it's not. You actually, I was rereading it. I was rereading it today, and I'm like, that's not my best work. But if you must know, I had a, I had to rewrite uh, write a review of um, Betty Davis' film Now Voyager because it's in cinemas now and it's been remastered, and it's got a new a wide release in the UK. So I figured, why not um, pitch it? To some publication which got accepted film cred thankfully accepted my page and now they publish my article so i can link to it in the show notes and i i'm just going to say this it is very good um no it's it. not yes it is stop it okay fine <laughs> thank um, you thank you for reading it that's fine and um you can find me on twitter at nick s chandler my website is superatomavision.com uh the aforementioned uh piece on boy is on there um so if you wanted to know a little bit more about me from on a personal level that's on there um uh yeah and um i've uh, the youtube thing so i'm i'm working away at it um, but it's like going through the edit of the podcast, it's making me realize that I needed better mic. So, um, yeah, that the YouTube thing's kind of like, I mean, I'm working away on it. Like I'm working away at scripts and stuff and, and the movies I want to talk about kind of thing. And, but before I can record and actually do some proper, the heavy duty stuff, um, I need a new mic first. So that's kind of on the, on the hold. Because I know I've been promising it for a couple of months, but, you know, if anybody was wondering. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with all that in mind, um, we got our podcast Twitter at Keenatomic and on our Gmail account at Keenatomic at gmail.com. Um, what do we want to know from our listeners? Ooh. 
What's your favorite anti-war film of all time? Yeah. What do you prefer, Thin Red Line or Saving Private Ryan? Ooh, controversial. Yeah, controversial. Um, okay, so with all, <laughs> yeah. with all that in mind, um, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me.